Good morning. Is that working? Oh, fantastic. We have amazing sound guys that battle through all the challenges of equipment and stuff, and, and I'm very thankful for them. <laughs> I'm a youth guy at heart, so you've got to start the day with a quiz, right? <laughs> um, this morning, we are done uh, Acts. 28, 29, we made up the last chapter, 29 chapters of Acts, and, and this journey with all the apostles and with Paul through this, through this incredible story that still goes on today. That's what we talked about two weeks ago. Last week, we talked about leadership, and this week, we're starting a new series called Jesus BC, Discovering Christ Before Christmas. So uh, that's what we're going to do over the next seven weeks. And we're not just going to look at the bit before the manger, so we're not just spending the next seven weeks looking at the shepherds and, you know, Steve and Jed and whatever their names were, uh, the wise men, but I suppose they were after the manger. We're not just going to spend the next seven weeks looking at Zechariah and Elizabeth and the miraculous birth. We're actually going to spend the next seven weeks going into the story way behind Christmas. We're going to try to cover the whole Old Testament in seven weeks. No problem. At a youth event, I did it in 45 minutes once. So <laughs> seven weeks is no problem at all. So what I want to do to get our minds in gear for this as we start is have a bit of a quiz. So stick that first slide up, Sam. I want to test your brains about how you know the story of the Old Testament. And if you get this perfect, no one will get it perfect, but the winners, Maltesers. So you have 12 names up there. Get your phone out or get a piece of paper out. Between like three, yeah. Get someone out. You can write names. Come on, Shirley. Get it out. Get Stan's out. He knows lots of stuff. <laughs> sure. Hell yeah. No, actually, no Googling. It'll take you a while to Google it. You don't have time to Google it. What I want you to do, 1 to 12, and put these names in order. In chronologically how they would appear, not how they come in the Bible, but chronologically how they'd appear in the story of the Bible. Come on, you've got to be in to win. Get your piece of paper out, get your phones out. 1 to 12. I'll give you a clue. Seeing as it's mostly the Old Testament, there's one name that I'm pretty sure is last on that list. But that's all I'm going to give you. You have one minute. Go. There you go. Fantastic catch. So, that is the storyline of the Old Testament. Those are some of the characters um, in this massive timeline. And we're going to be coming back to this again and again. Um, because we're going back to look at the whole story of Jesus. Where the story began. Not just a month before, not just a year before, but further and further back. And that's the hook on which I want to rest this. But the story on which I want to rest this series is uh, Luke 24. Next slide, Sam. Luke 24, we have the story called The Road to Emmaus. Everyone's probably heard this story. Uh, and we have two disciples that are walking along this road, Cleopas and the other person. We don't even get the other person's name. It could be his wife, could be another person, we don't know. And they're, they're leaving Jerusalem. And the reality is they might be leaving Jerusalem for good. They might be going home. These are, these are disciples of Jesus, but they actually might be packing it in. They're walking home, and it doesn't say this, but we know from what they know, they're probably pretty disillusioned. They're probably confused, and they're in the middle of, of, of a heated conversation. 
You see, we know the story, but the story for them is that two days previous, the man they hoped was the king. The man who a week previous they were laying, you know, the palm branches down on the ground for. They were laying the coats on the ground for. They were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This man who they thought was the king of Israel coming to take over, coming to take it back from Rome in whatever way, miraculous or fighting, whatever way that was going to look like, this man was arrested, we know. He was tried and he lost and he was crucified and he was buried. This man was all their hope. So many people had given up everything for them. And he's buried. And their hopes are buried. We know the rest of the story, but they don't. Interestingly, there's a whole other thing going on around this. You see, just a few verses before in Luke, um, it said the women had come back from the tomb. They went, remember, to put spices on the body, and they'd come back from the tomb. And they'd said, the tomb's empty. The tomb's empty. We've seen an angel. Jesus is alive. And you, so you'd think these people wouldn't be going home. They'd be going, really? Amazing. But it says this. The apostles didn't believe what the women said because they thought their words seemed like nonsense to them. Does that sound familiar to anybody? No, it doesn't at all. The apostles didn't believe a word the women said because their words seemed like nonsense to them. So in the midst of all this hope, in the midst of their lack of hope, their hope being buried, this tiny bit of hope arises, this, this rumor arises, but it was squashed by the apostles as far as these two know. And so they head off home. They head off to Emmaus. And they're walking along, speaking so animatedly, so uh, like all Middle Easterns, hands going, shouting, confused, discussing all the events of the day, to the point that a man they don't even know stops them and asks the question, what are you talking about? And they can't believe this. They say, are you the only person visiting Jerusalem that doesn't know this stuff? And... And they get a response from him. They start to share a bit of the story of what had just happened about this guy they knew and all the stuff that I just relayed. And they get a response from this guy that they don't know that probably sur surprised them a bit. The man rebukes them for their foolishness and disbelief and says this. Next slide, Sam. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? What? You don't, you don't know the guy. And it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And their eyes were probably being illumined, but they didn't still know who this guy was. And yet amazed by his teaching potentially, or maybe just practicing Middle Eastern hospitality, they were getting towards the village. So they said, come on in, eat with us, spend time with us. Maybe they want him, wanted him to keep teaching them. And Luke records that as Jesus broke bread with them, their eyes were finally opened. And just as their eyes were opened, what happened? Boom. Jesus disappeared from their sight. And I find it amazing reading this and thinking back to this as we're thinking about the context of Christmas that it wasn't a reminder of all the miracles. They'd actually been on this journey with Jesus. It wasn't a reminder of all the amazing things that Jesus had done that opened their eyes. 
their eyes opened after Jesus showed them all that was said in the scriptures regarding himself. What caused their hearts to burn within them, it says, as we walked along the road, did our hearts not burn within us? Was not, do you remember the time? Or do you remember this? The walking on water, the feeding, come on guys, wake up. What caused their hearts to burn was hearing about stories that were written 400 to 1500 years before Jesus even came. These books they had, these scrolls they had, amazingly, we still have copies of, not direct copies of some of these, but in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we still have copies of some of these from before the time of Jesus. And that's what inspired these guys. And that's what inspired me, I suppose, to to go back into this big story. We constantly go to the Gospels, to the Epistles, but so much of the stories told in the pages, the many, many, many pages of the Old Testament before the manger ever happened. So where do we begin the story? Luke starts, click on the next one, with uh, the the gospel of Luke starts a year before Jesus' birth. It starts with the story of uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth and the story of John the Baptist who was going to make ready the people for the Lord. But that's still in the gospels. We don't just want to start a year before Jesus was born. In Acts, when Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost, he jumps back a thousand years to the Psalms, and he quotes David, this proclamation of coming hope. In Psalm 16, which he quotes, he says, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope of the future, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. A thousand years before Jesus. And that's what Peter proclaims to all those people visiting Jerusalem. Just a few chapters later in Acts, Stephen goes right back to Abraham. So Stephen goes back 2,000 years to start telling the Sanhedrin the story of Jesus. And then as we go back to the book of Luke, uh, a little further on in the book of Luke, chapter 6, I think, Luke gives us the genealogy of Jesus. And of course, we know the genealogy of Jesus goes right back to Seth the son of Adam, the son of God. So we're already back in the Gospels on the first page of the Bible. So that's probably a pretty good place to start. John actually takes us just a bit, well, he doesn't take us further than the first page, but he takes us to the very start of the first page when when John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So that's where I want to start. And that's where we're going to go over the next six weeks. But today I want to start right in the first page of the Bible. Because I said, we all know the stories. In fact, my kids could tell you the stories over and over and over again. In fact, we have a great book that actually tells now how, this is where I got the series from now, how Jesus links into all that. We have an amazing kids book that links Jesus into all of it. But we know the great moral and even spiritual and courage lessons from this. But do we really connect it all together to get the great big story of the Bible? And so I want to, as we walk through, Ali and I and us, we want to re-look through the great story of the Bible. Someone asked a pastor in Canada once a total Bible school question. At, at a, it, was at, it was in church like this, and nobody asks questions in church, thankfully, like this. But they said, what lens do you, re-? I'm trying to do my Canadian accent, which I do better than my Northern Irish accent. 
What lens do you read the Bible through? Do you read it through, what were the words, dispensational lens? Or do you read it, read it through a covenantal lens? And this guy, Bruxy, who's a huge mind, said, uh, I read it through Jesus. <laughs> and he said this. Go on the next slide. Everything in the Bible either points ahead to Jesus, the Old Testament, or points at Jesus, the Gospels, or points ahead to his return, the rest of the epistles. What do you read the Bible through? All of the stories need to be through the lens of Jesus. The very first page of the Bible begins with, the word of God as John spoke. Let there be light. Let there be waters. Let there be land. Let there be vegetari vegetarians. Let there be ve there was. <laughs> Let there be vegetation. Let there be creatures in the waters and creatures on the land. And then the final act in all creation of the culmination, crazily, because it, well, I was going to say it shouldn't have been, but it should have been, was man. Next slide. Genesis 1, 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. A guy named Wayne Grudem, theology guy, did a study on this, and he looked back at what all the rabbis said before Jesus, in that intertestament, the, the guys before Jesus. And there's about 50 guys that wrote about this, and none of them wrote the same thing because none of them knew what to do with this passage. What is us? What does our mean? But the story continues. We know that God gave the first man how many rules? I'll give you a clue. It's on one hand. <laughs> one rule. Next slide. Genesis 2, 15 to 17. Then God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree, next slide, in the garden. But you must not, so you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, interesting, I just noticed, he didn't say if you eat from it. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And the crazy thing is this seems like the smallest possible restriction God could have put on Adam and Eve. There's a massive, amazing garden, but there's one tree in the middle. Adam, Eve's not even here yet, but don't eat from it. A guy named Edmund Clowney, who is the structure of the series we're actually building around his book called The Unfolding Mystery, says, that by passing this one simple obedience test, Adam could have been confirmed as the righteous son of God, free to eat from the tree of life forever. But he wasn't. And we're pretty clear evidence that he wasn't. With almost no delay, after Eve was created, just saying... <laughs> Nah, and, uh, he was standing beside her the whole time. It's a bit of a joke, actually. Adam and Eve turned away from God because, because they, were, they were easily convinced they wanted more. 
They were easily convinced that what they had wasn't enough, that simply being in relationship with God, simply having a likeness of God wasn't enough. They wanted knowledge. It says they wanted wisdom, the full knowledge of God. And we know that the story goes on because of this, instead of living forever in perfection or or goodness, I suppose the Bible says, in relationship with God, they got exactly what God warned them about. If you eat from the tree, you will die. But we know that the story of man from that point on doesn't start to be, but is revealed to be an amazing, passionate, compassionate rescue mission of the Father, who he takes initiative again and again to pursue his children. A story that's not about fate, it's not about chance, it's not about your bad choices or my bad choices. A story that actually is built on this growing, incredible promise of God. And this incredible drama begins that stretches right from this first pages right to the end. And yet, amazingly, as I read through this and I was thinking about it, it's actually not post-sin that God starts to write the story. God's actually writing the story right in the midst of this rebellion. And that's what I want to look at today. But just after in John 3, sorry, in Genesis 3.15, God says this to Satan. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, he says to the serpent, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will only strike his heel. So right after this rebellion, right after they're given everything and man and woman turns against him, we have this seed of a promise dropped in that they wouldn't have got it all then. But as we look back with accumulation, we see this incredible seed of a promise. But what I want to look into today is what happened just before this. What happened after the seed of a pro- what happened before the seed of a promise starts? Because we have this story of the temptation of Adam and Eve, but it was actually of Eve with Adam seemingly just standing right beside her. And there's three things that Adam and Eve are basically tested with. And they're unbelievably paralleling and and foreshadowing the incredible three things that Jesus will be tempted with in the wilderness, however many millennia later. The first thing Eve was tempted with was to test the goodness and the trustworthiness of God. Next slide. This is incredible gall. Satan has amazing gall that they'd thinking that Adam and Eve would forget so soon. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden is that what god really says as if god wants to greatly limit you there's all these trees but god doesn't want you to eat from any of them amazingly next slide what god actually said wasn't we know we just heard it you are free to eat from any tree in the garden but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil one tiny limitation in all that beauty. And this is a massive contrast, a massive parallel and foreshadow to the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Adam and Eve had everything. Jesus had just been fasting for 40 days, so Jesus literally had nothing. In reality, he was probably within days or that day of starvation. But Satan didn't tempt Jesus exactly the same way. He didn't just say, 
did God really just send you, after just saying all that stuff, did he really just send you into the wilderness to let you die? Satan said to God, or to, to Jesus, if you are the son of God, tell this one stone to become bread. And as I said, what's amazing is you can't imagine a smaller limitation for Adam and Eve, but you also can't imagine a smaller temptation for Jesus. He wasn't asking him at the, at the start to do great things. If you're the son of God, just, just this one stone, you're, you're hungry, just turn this into bread. Adam and Eve had already forgotten what God said to Adam. In Genesis 1.28, it said, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Rule it. God bless them. And Adam forgot that. But Jesus, probably not dissimilar distance from God's word, thinking right back to his baptism, obviously clearly remembered and, and was probably holding on to the reality of what God said to him. When the voice appeared after Jesus' baptism and the dove descended on him, it said, you are my son with whom I love. Sorry, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Adam and Eve were easily tempted away from the goodness and the reality and the blessing of God, and Jesus held strong to it. Next, Eve was tempted to doubt whether God would actually fulfill his word whether God would actually do what he said he did. And this is what every child does to their parents. Do you think mom's really going to do that? Do you think dad's really going to do that? The devil said to Eve, I know God warned you not to eat the, free, the fruit from the tree, but certainly you will not die, Genesis 3 and 4. Would God really do that to you? Jesus was tempted in another way. He was tempted to take the word of God out of context and doubt whether God would fulfill it. Satan quotes Psalm 91, God's word. This is your father's word. It says all over this book, your father's inspired word. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here for it is written. Not just anywhere, you know where it's written. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And I thought this was a really an, another amazing point that Edmund makes in his book. Eve essentially, Satan essentially said to Eve, eat it, you will not surely die. God's lied to you, God's misleading you. And Satan essentially says to, uh, to Jesus, jump, you will not surely die unless God has lied to you. They're tempted to test the reality and the fulfillment of God's word. And the third temptation of Adam and Eve is this, the most amazing and clear contrast to the temptation of Jesus. To Eve, the serpent promised that God was holding back on the more that they deserved. In verses four and five, it says, it's up there, you will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, from the fruit, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's more for you to have. You deserve more. 
And the crazy thing is that Adam and Eve were given the whole world to eat from and to subdue. In Genesis 1, 28 to 30, it said, God blessed them again. And he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God continued to say, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. Adam and Eve were given everything. How much is this like us? But they wanted just a little bit more. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband. This is baffling. Who was with her? What's he doing? And he ate it. It wasn't enough for Adam and Eve just to be made in the image of God. It wasn't enough for Adam and Eve to have everything to eat and an earth to subdue. They wanted to be like God. They wanted all the wisdom of God. <laughs> they want more. We want more. And the final part, this final part of Adam and Eve's desire and temptation is so different from the reality of Jesus' temptation and the reality that Jesus fulfilled. Next slide, Satan took Jesus to the high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. All this I will give you if you bow down and worship me. And that's all we know that Satan said, but I wonder if it was like, Jesus, we know you're here to claim your kingship back. We know you're here for a fight. I know exactly who you are but we can make this easier for you and for me. You know there's going to be a cost. All this can be yours. We don't even have to show anyone else. Just today, just today, just bow down and worship me. It's all yours. And we think, of course, well, that's not going to be a temptation for Jesus. That's not, I mean, that's, Jesus, you know, he's strong. He wouldn't fool for that, fall for that, and, and he wouldn't fall for that. But what this made me think of when I was reading it is fast-forwarding to Mark 14. When Jesus is praying in the garden and he says, Father, anything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. He didn't say me. He actually said, Father, take this cup from me. And sweating great drops of blood, he said, yet not what I will, but what you will. And I wonder if as he said that, he wasn't tempted, oh, if only I could go back to the garden. But I wonder if as he said that, he thought, remember, back, not to the garden, to the wilderness. And that slimy creature. Jesus was not looking for more than he'd been given. Jesus couldn't have been given any more. He is the creator. He is the stainer, sustainer. He ruled the universe. And yet he was willing to be obedient to any cost. It's such an unbelievable contrast to Adam and Eve in the garden in us. In Philippians 2, 5.11, it talks about this so clearly. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus 
who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. That's what it says to your own advantage in, in, the, in the new translations. But the NIV used to say, uh, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And I wonder if they translate it that way just because it mirrors so much that moment in the garden. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, getting lower and lower. He humbled himself, getting lower by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Not because he looked for more in any way, but because he went lower and lower in obedience to the Father. Adam and Eve were literally given the whole world and they wanted just that little bit more. They wanted the tree that was good for food and pleasing to the eye. Jesus created the universe and he was willing to take so much less. But the crazy thing, and this is what we start the story with, even in Adam and Eve's tragic story, we have the startings of the writings of God's amazing story. We have the startings of the, of the writing of God's amazing promise from Adam, the old man, to this incredible new man. And this is the story that we're going to re-examine because we all know it, but re-explore over the next six weeks after today. And it's an incredible story, and Jesus is written all over it. How do I read the Bible? What, with which lens do you read the Bible through? <laughs> Jesus. 2 Corinthians five seventeen to 21 says this, and I'm finishing with this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. That's the picture of it. The old is gone the new is here. That's the picture we saw. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And as I thought about this, I thought about our vision and our values. We reach out in love and this is obviously at the heart of that. And 2 Corinthians five seventeen to 21 goes on to say, and God gave us the ministry of reconciliation we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. It's good to know that our values are actually written from the scriptures, isn't it? Adam was the old man and the story started right there in the garden. But amazingly, right from the start, we get the seed of a promise of the new man that's to come millennia and millennia later. And that's what we're going to explore over the next six weeks. Let me pray. God, I thank you for your word and I pray you help us reopen our eyes to it. God, I pray you help our hearts to burn within us as we hear your story. Yes, in the gospels, but also in the 39 books over thousands of years that run up to it. Help us implant that in our lives, God, that we may be your ambassadors for the new man that reconciled us to God. I pray this in Jesus' name.